This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Good to have you with us on Trumpet Hour today. I'm Joel Hilliker. An opinion article in Newsweek last week was titled Lessons from the U.S. Civil War Show Why Ukraine Can't Win. It argues that we're seeing the same shift in the war in Ukraine that took place in the Civil War. At the beginning, McClellan fought a more limited war. He was trying to beat the South with strategy without causing major damage to the South's economy or their infrastructure. But there came a point when Abraham Lincoln and Generals Grant and Sherman saw that wasn't possible, and they transitioned to a more destructive war. They were aimed at destroying not just Southern armies, but Southern infrastructure and their ability to sustain their armies. Well, it appears that Russian President Vladimir Putin may have found his General Grant, and he's shifting to a more intense, destructive strategy to bring Ukraine to heel. We'll begin today's show with a report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about this. A new documentary series on Netflix called Harry and Meghan accuses Britain's royal family of being built on racism and slavery. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex promised to tell the unvarnished truth, but their accusations are loaded with unfounded allegations and lies. What is the purpose of this nasty and deceitful attack on Britain's royalty and British history? In our second segment, we'll talk about this with our British correspondent, Richard Palmer. And then we'll look at America's economy, which is plagued by towering debt, government dependency, climbing inflation, and other problems. If you want to know where these trends are leading, look at how similar troubles plagued ancient Rome right before it collapsed. We'll hear a report about this from trumpet writer Andrew Miller. And at the end of the show, I'll have a last word about how if you find yourself getting worn down by the struggles that often come with family life, there's some important truth you need to keep in mind. We'll start now with a look at the escalation in Russia's attack on Ukraine in this report from Jeremiah Jacques. Russia's war on Ukraine is now well into its 10th month, and there is clear evidence now that Russia has shifted into a new phase of the war. So for the first several months, Russia was fighting what President Vladimir Putin insisted on calling a special military operation. This term wasn't entirely accurate, but there was a somewhat limited scope to the approach. Putin was optimistic that Russia would win in a matter of days or weeks at the most, so he fought with a force of only about 190,000 troops. He expected that an invasion force of this size would be able to push into Kyiv. Ukraine's capital very quickly, and into other key regional capitals as well, and that they would be able to quickly decapitate Ukraine's West-leaning government and replace it with a Russian puppet government. And due to a combination of hubris and bad intel from his team of yes-men, Putin thought that the Ukrainians would offer very little resistance to all of this, and that in fact many of them would welcome the Russians as liberators with flowers and cheers. The Russians especially thought that this would be the case in Russian-speaking Ukrainian cities, such as Mariupol. 
Many Russian troops believe that their mission was a simple one because Russian propaganda has for years been conditioning them to think that Ukrainians have no faith in their independent state and that the Ukrainians wanted Russia to actually annex them. But of course that wasn't true and that's not how the invasion turned out. When the Russians arrived, the Ukrainians saw them not as liberators, but as savage invaders. Thieves come not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. The Ukrainians understood that Vladimir Putin's Russia wanted to erase Ukraine off the map and absorb it completely into their nation. So instead of greeting Russian soldiers with flowers and cheers, it was bullets and bombs. It was Molotov cocktails from Ukrainian civilians and weaponized hobby drones. And from Ukrainian military forces, there was every imaginable kind of counterattack. And those counterattacks were backed by surprisingly robust support from the United States, the United Kingdom, and many European nations. So the resistance that Russia's army faced was a surprise to Putin and most Russians. But even still, for the first several months, Russia continued to mostly use those same original 190,000 troops, just rotating their slowly declining numbers through different parts of Ukraine as he tried to expand the area that Russia controlled. And Russia continued to hope for months that it may be able to win the war and conquer Ukraine without utterly destroying the entire nation. There was utter destruction of some cities, such as Mariupol and Lyman, and there was a great deal of some of the most psychotic barbarity toward civilian populations that you could imagine in those cities. But it seemed that the Russians may have hoped that the cities that suffered that kind of unhinged barbarity might serve as cautionary tales for the rest of the nation, and that they would convince the rest to give in to Russia more easily. And during these first seven months, there were two different supreme commanders over the Russian war. First, there was Army General Alexander Dvornikov, and then in June, Dvornikov was replaced by Gennady Zidko. So that was the basic situation with Russia's approach to the war for the first seven months or so. But then in late September, after Russia had been suffering all kinds of defeats and had been pushed out of areas that it had previously conquered, at that time, Putin seemed to realize that nothing about his war effort was going to be even remotely easy. And he seemed to realize that he would have to escalate. So that's when he ordered what he called a partial mobilization of reserve forces. That order brought about 300,000 new Russian troops onto the battlefields. So Russian forces were getting more numerous. And then Putin also gave an address to his nation at that time, saying that Russia would use, quote, all means necessary to achieve its takeover of Ukraine. And then a few weeks after that, Putin appointed a new man as supreme commander of the war effort. This was Army General Sergei Surovikin. Surovikin is a general who cut his teeth in Russia's second war on Chechnya and also in Syria. In Syria, he was the one responsible mainly for the notorious bombing of Aleppo that razed the city to rubble and ash. So Surovikin is infamous. He's seen as a merciless and brutal hardliner. 
In the Russian military, he's actually known as General Armageddon. And that's due to his tendency to lead unconventionally and brutally. And around the time that Surovikin was appointed, we did start seeing an increase in large-scale missile attacks on infrastructure, especially civilian infrastructure, in Ukraine. In fact, it was just two days after Surovikin's appointment as Supreme Commander that Russia began its wave of relentlessly shelling these kinds of targets across Ukraine, and when rockets began hitting Kyiv again for the first time in months. So the appointment of Surovikin does represent a new phase in Russia's war, and this is a phase of total ruthlessness. Putin's new Supreme Commander is pulling out all the stops and working to utterly obliterate as much of Ukraine as he can. Civilians, civilian infrastructure, including power grids and water pumping stations, anything that can help Ukrainian troops needs to be destroyed in Surovikin's view. If every vestige of Ukraine's infrastructure, economy, and society need to be flattened in order for Russia to win, then every vestige will be flattened. That's Surovikin's philosophy. And it's basically a philosophy of total war. So this is a dark turn of events for the Ukrainians. And if we want to see a possible outcome for the war, history offers us a potentially instructive analogy, and that is the American Civil War. Back in the early 1860s, in the early days of the conflict, the North fought a limited war with a high level of restraint. Under General George McClellan, the North aimed to use maneuver and siege tactics to win battles at minimal cost to both sides. The North didn't want the South's economy or its infrastructure to be caught in the crossfire, so they did their best to leave as much as possible of it intact. McClellan and others thought that this measured approach would compel Southern leaders to see that they were reasonable and prompt them to peacefully give up the idea of succession. So it sounds reasonable, but the North soon discovered that this was a doomed strategy, especially as they fought against Robert E. Lee's Southern forces. Lee was a rash and reckless gambler who would attack full throttle even when his forces were decisively outgunned and outnumbered. He didn't care about losing men or wreaking havoc on civilian populations. So the South was winning some impressive victories. And that's when the North saw that the measured approach that McClellan had been using was doomed to fail. President Lincoln famously said, the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. And it was around this time that Lincoln started putting men like General Grant and General Sherman over the Northern forces. And the Northern forces abandoned the restraint that they had previously shown. General Sherman in particular was the antithesis of restraint. His forces started tearing up the railroad tracks in the South and all kinds of other infrastructure. In 1864, he made his famous March to the Sea during which he cut a path through Georgia about 300 miles long and 60 miles wide. And inside this path, they obliterated all bridges, railroads, and public buildings of all kinds. So the North shifted toward something much closer to total war, and that shift is a big part of what eventually won the war for the North. The 
There is a Newsweek op-ed written by David Rundell and Michael Fowler that was published on December 6th. And it draws some parallels between the shift that we're now seeing in Russia's approach to conquering Ukraine and what happened in the U.S. Civil War. One part of this op-ed says, Putin had not counted on Ukraine's stiff resistance or the West's massive military and economic intervention. Faced with a new situation, Putin changed his strategy. Now he is about to unleash his own General Sherman and make Ukraine howl. And then skipping down, the Newsweek op-ed continues. Armies need railroads, and while Sherman systematically tore up the tracks leading to Atlanta, Surovikin is destroying the electricity grid which powers Ukrainian railroads. This has left Ukrainian cities cold and dark, but Surovikin seems to agree with Sherman that war is cruelty and you cannot refine it. And then the op-ed goes on to say that with Surovikin now in charge, and with Russia now abandoning all restraint in favor of something near to total war, that it means a Ukrainian defeat is very near. The author's right. Once Ukraine's rich black soil has firmly frozen, a massive Russian onslaught will commence. In fact, it's already begun at the important transportation hub of Bakhmut, which has become something of a Ukrainian Verdun. We expect Bakhmut to fall and predict that without much more Western support, Russia will recapture Kharkov, Kherson, and the remainder of the Donbass by next summer. End quote. So the analogy here isn't perfect. We know that in the U.S. Civil War, there was also the matter of manufacturing, which was enormous because the North had it and the South didn't. So for supplying arms and ammo, that gave the North a colossal advantage. So that was a huge factor in the Civil War, and that's actually the opposite of what we're seeing in Russia's war on Ukraine. Because of Western backing, Ukraine has manufacturing. And because of sanctions and endemic corruption, Russia is really struggling in that area. We're even seeing Russia having to turn to North Korea and to Iran to procure ammunition and weapons. So that's one area where this analogy breaks down. And then I also don't think that we can accurately say, as the Newsweek op-ed claims, that the Russians up until this point have been kind of merciful and have been intentionally restraining themselves to minimize destruction, the way the American North did in the early months of the Civil War. Sure, the Russians did miscalculate in the early months, and they did underestimate both Ukrainian resistance and Western backing. And the Russians have had to contend with endless organizational and logistical struggles. So it's true that the Russians haven't mustered their full firepower in every battle. But this has been more a result of unpreparedness than of some kind of noble McClellanian strategy of clemency. With the exception of the nuclear weapons that Vladimir Putin keeps threatening to use, the evidence shows that there's actually not much that Russian forces have held back. But nevertheless, I think it's an interesting analogy. And if this new Russian commander, Surovikin, is able to keep on decimating more of Ukraine's infrastructure, it could mean that the days of Ukraine being able to hold its own against the invaders are numbered. Shifting the war to a more total approach will eventually make it impossible for Ukraine's smaller forces to maintain their resistance. So this strategy could bring an end 
to this war that has dragged on for far longer than most anyone, myself included, expected that it would. However the situation pans out in the short term, and as sad as it is to say, we should expect Putin to win the war. And this is because of what Trump Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has said about Putin's role in Bible prophecy. There are many passages about an end-time Asian power that will combine numerous countries into a colossal military alliance. The books of Daniel and Joel and Revelation give details about this future alliance. And one of the main books that also mentions it is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38.2 says that this Asian bloc will be led by a prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That's the way Young's literal translation renders that verse. And Mr. Flurry has been saying since late 2013 that these names, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, refer to Russia and two of its key cities, and that this passage is describing Vladimir Putin. In his booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Flurry writes, Putin's track record, his nationality, and his ideology show that he is fulfilling a linchpin Bible prophecy. The time frame of his rule also shows that nobody else could be fulfilling the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. We need to watch Vladimir Putin closely. He is the Prince of Rosh, whom God inspired Ezekiel to write about 2,500 years ago. End quote. So, since the trumpet has this understanding of Vladimir Putin's role in end-time prophecy, we maintain that whether it's with this new supreme commander or some other approach, that Putin will survive the war and emerge victorious. Mr. Flurry has written on several occasions that Putin has already fulfilled part of these prophecies and that he will stick around to fulfill the rest of them. His booklet shows that this means there are some truly dark times ahead for Ukraine, Russia, and the whole world. But Mr. Flurry also emphasizes that this darkness will not last long, and that it'll give way to a radiant and hope-filled future. He writes, Vladimir Putin is a sign, literally a sign, of one of the most inspiring messages in the Bible. What we are seeing in Russia ultimately leads to the transition from man-ruling man to God ruling men. A great transition is about to occur, so we have to realize that this is all good news. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Netflix has just come out with the first installment in a documentary called Harry and Meghan, in which the Duke and Duchess of Sussex promise to tell the unvarnished, ugly truth about Britain's royal family. Here's the trailer. It's really hard to look back on it now and go, what on earth happened? You hear that? That is the sound of hearts breaking all around the world. She's becoming a royal rock star. Everything changed. There's a hierarchy of the family. You know, there's leaking, but there's also planting of stories. There was a war against Meghan to suit other people's agendas. It's about hatred. It's about race. It's a dirty game. The pain and suffering of women marrying into this institution, this feeding frenzy. 
they realized they're never going to protect you. I was terrified. I didn't want history to repeat itself. No one knows the full truth. We know the full truth. To talk about this, we have from our office in Britain, trumpet writer Richard Palmer. Hello there. Good afternoon. So Harry and Meghan's split from the royal family was very messy, and they made some terrible accusations against the royals. This documentary really seems to be taking things up a notch or considerably a stronger attack against the royal family. Tell us what the public is going to learn by watching this documentary. Well, if you believe everything that you see on it, that you'll learn that uh, the royal family is fundamentally racist, that it was built on the back of slaves, that slavery was at the foundation of the British Empire that sustains the royal family. You'll learn then that the royal family was institution instrumental in creating a commonwealth that would perpetuate and continue the same kind of racist, um, colonial, uh, you know, a, a way for Britain to continue to take money and resources out of the colonies. And that because of all of this, there's a racist attitude just built into the normal, the, the royal family. And that this is at the heart of why when um, Meghan married Prince Harry, she wasn't happy and she wasn't made welcome uh, because of this fundamental racism that's at the heart, not just of the royal family, but of the country and all British institutions and traditions. So the accusations are as inflammatory and destructive as they could be. What sort of hard evidence of whether there's any substance to them do they have? Not much. I think there wasn't a huge amount new in terms of, you know, I think they kind of hyped this documentary that you were going to see new evidence of racism within the royal family or and uh, new, I don't know, video footage or insights or new accusations, quotes, that kind of thing. We didn't really get that. Now, we might tomorrow when the next volume comes out, and I think certainly there may be some new accusations in there, I think what really stood out to me from these series is the historians that were then brought forward. This was the kind of the new evidence where they had a couple of far left historians to explain this background uh, and to explain what well, basically what I've said that that you know they they told the viewers that Britain's traditions are filled with racist imagery, that Britain's empire was fueled with slavery. Uh, and that the Commonwealth was just um, you know, basically the British Empire with better PR and that um, everybody who is wealthy in Britain basically is complicit in slavery and extracting resources and money from people of other races. But it was these historian experts that were, I think, the main kind of so-called evidence of that. So it's it's kind of jarring. Uh, the last time that we heard from the royal family, basically, was the death of Queen Elizabeth, which was this 
extraordinarily uh, well-received pageantry surrounding uh, recognizing what a, a phenomenal woman she was and the effect that she had on the uh, the British Commonwealth and on British society. Uh, so much positive outpouring of support uh, globally, even outside of Britain, for them to be coming with these kinds of accusations and coming this hard at her, and obviously this has been in uh, progress for quite some time, production, uh, that they've been doing this. They've had this in mind to uh, make these attacks even before the Queen died. Uh, what do you think they're after here? What are they trying to accomplish? I think their intentions were made very clear when they released the first trailer for this at the same time that Prince William was in America for a pretty major royal visit. This was all about trying to to hurt the royal family. And I think it was. It did kind of come from left field to a certain extent because there were pictures of, of reconciliation. You had... Uh, after the Queen's death, Harry and Meghan, alongside Prince William, Prince and uh, and and Kate, going round and shaking hands together and greeting mourners and and things like that. The whole family getting together, and there were people saying, "Well, you know, this seems like it's the beginning of things coming coming back together," and that didn't happen. Uh, but the, it feels like if they'd have told the royals at the time that this is what they pl- were planning on doing, it, it wouldn't have. Uh, been so smooth back then so it seemed like they kept things quiet and then that this was just released to try and do maximum damage the spectator wrote that um that prince harry his wife and their media handlers appear hell-bent on their mission to cause as much trouble as possible for the royal family they've left behind in particular for brother william and sister-in-law kate and i think to me one of the things that's really interesting is it seems like this might have been the intent for longer than we've realized. This video included video footage that the two of them were filming on iPhones while they were leaving the country after essentially quitting the royal family. That, you know, you start to think, well, did they have this kind of big documentary expose in mind back then? Is this why they were they were kind of recording these in, these intimate moments on their phones? Uh, and so I think it does reveal uh, a level of calculation and pre-planning to this attack to, to, to smear Britain and the royal family beyond what we've seen in earlier attacks. This is probably the most extreme expression of a, a pretty common view of British history uh, that has pervaded academia uh, and kind of public discourse in Britain and beyond this kind of anti-colonial Britain is racist view. Um, What I wonder is what your view is now that we have King Charles III in place. It seems that he is definitely taking a more sympathetic view toward that version of British history than what we have seen from the royal family before this point. As, as, as uh, upset as he might be by uh, this documentary, it does seem like there are some elements of the attack on the royals that he is acquiescing to to some degree. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, you go back to some of the comments that he's made for several years about... Uh, for example, being defender of 
faiths rather than a defender of the faith and trying to be more inclusive in his coronation ceremony. We had more news around that today and how you know, the, the, the coronation oath itself is pretty unapologetically criti- uh, Christian. Mm-hmm. And th- I think they feel like legally because of the union with Scotland, they can't water that down. So they're looking at well, a lot, what language can we re- put in place before and after it to soften that and to bring in other countries. And even there, okay, it's a bit of a different thing, but there's a lack of belief or pride in Britain's Christian heritage and a desire for multiculturalism on a level that we haven't seen thus far. Uh, And this has all been kind of a, so much of that ceremony, the coronation ceremony is about celebrating England's heritage with God and the Bible. And yeah, not everything about that is doctrinally correct, and not everything in there is uh, you know, maybe exactly the way that it that it should be. But there's a pride in that heritage that is gone now, mm-hmm. and that is he's you know, rejecting ultimately. And so I think that's one sign of it. I think you saw another sign of it just in right around the same time when. Uh, you had this big uproar. I think we talked about it on Trumpet Hour on the on the Friday show at the time, where one of the Queen's lady ladies in waiting asked, or former ladies in waiting asked, a guest to the palace, or where are you from? And this guest took great offense at that and went on Twitter and talked about how she felt violated and how racist this lady was. And this lady that had volunteer voluntarily so served the Queen for sixty two years and become one of her closest aides, confidants, friends. Uh, was kicked out in a matter of hours and there was no willingness to stand up for her. I think if the Royal family had shown some backbone, there was a large proportion of Britain that would have stood behind them. But instead there was just a a willingness and a great speed of caving in to, to say the woke mob, which I think is, is maybe different to what we've seen. I mean, lack of courage has maybe been a trend in, in British leadership for a long time, but still that felt like a new low. You wrote a trumpet brief about this uh, last week, right before the first uh, episode of this uh, series came out, and you made an interesting connection between this attack on British history and what we see happening within the United States and this fundamental uh, disagreement with the legacy what is, what does british history mean this is what this is the the argument that's taking place within america there's this view that america is fundamentally racist and oppressive and everything that all of these accusations against the royal family the same things are being leveled against america now you make the point that there's a common uh origin to these attacks can you just explain that yeah, I think it's it's to the credit of a lot of uh, American commentators that they they also see this common trend. You, know, you get people like Tucker Carlson and, and others that, uh, you know, America's founding fathers were not great fans of the British monarchy, mm-hmm. to put it mildly. But they fundamentally see the connection here, and and that there is there is a good in both countries that are being that is being attacked at the same time. And what well. I, Mr. Uh, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote about this in, in his book, Great Again, is he said, there is a spiritual dimension to America's decline that most people do not see. And, and before making that statement, he went through all of these pillars of American tradition that are under attack. And it is exactly the same with Britain's royal family. It's the same kind of spiritual, there's the same spiritual dimension. 
And if we're going to rely on the Bible as our guide and our Bible for understanding world events, well, the Bible's very clear that there is a devil and that there's a spirit world that has a profound influence on world events. And when we see a trend like that and just this complete kind of, you know, it's emerged from nowhere, but it's across broad spectrum of society, uh, there's a, a satanic attack here. So the Bible talks about or, or reveals really just that Britain and America had a history with God and that these countries were blessed not because they did anything, not because they earned uh, God's favor in any way, but because of God's plan for all of mankind. And so both of these nations find themselves under attack because of an evil spirit being that hates that same plan for mankind. And it's the same for the royal family. The royal family plays a critical role in, in or has a role in God's plan for mankind. The, 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 the royal family that you used to have you know, going throughout uh, hundreds of years in Britain, God talks about his son, Jesus Christ, coming, sitting on a throne, a throne that is still in existence uh, all the time that he is not here on the earth and that was still in existence you know, before he uh, came 2,000 years ago. So there's a throne that plays a role in God's plan for mankind. And so it's fundamentally this hatred, this attack in, in, in Britain and America, it stems out of a satanic hatred for God and the way that God wants to, to work with and bring blessings to everybody. Well, uh, very well summarized. We have quite a lot of material on thetrumpet.com about this subject, and we will uh, put some links in the show notes to more literature that uh, will teach you about this if you're interested. We've been talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about the new Netflix documentary about the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Harry and Meghan. Take a look at his trumpet brief about this from last week. It's called Britain's Royal Family Attacked from Within and Without. You can find that on thetrumpet.com. Thanks so much for your time, Mr. Palmer. Pleasure to be here. is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. America's economic policies are creating towering debt, widespread government dependency, climbing inflation, and other problems. Where are these trends leading? Well, we can get a good idea of the answer by looking at history, as we will now hear in this report from Andrew Miller. Massive public works, bureaucratic institutions, government dysfunction, rampant corruption, bloated budgets, trade deficits, runaway inflation, crushing tax burdens, economic inequality, and political violence. These phrases describe the last days of the Roman Empire as much as they describe America today. So it's important that every citizen wake up and take a look at them. America's founders were deeply inspired by the ancient Roman Republic. After studying the writings of Livy, Plutarch, Polybius, Sallust, Tacitus, Thucydides, and above all, Cicero, they established an economy based upon free trade, 
property rights in private enterprise. But just as Americans tried to duplicate Rome's success, they are also prone to Rome's failure. Alexander Hamilton, America's first Treasury Secretary, was likely inspired by Rome's fixed exchange rates between the gold aureus, the silver denarius, and the bronze sestercius when they established a bimetallic standard for the U.S. dollar. And Pierre-Charles Lafont, the architect who designed Washington, D.C., was unquestionably inspired by Roman architecture when he drew up plans for the new U.S. capital. Yet more than exchange rates or infrastructure, America's founders were inspired by Roman civic virtue. In the days of Rome's greatness, the Romans regarded themselves as their chief source of income. They worked hard to provide for themselves and their relatives because they knew that self-sufficient family units were the basic building block of any stable society. The Romans rose to greatness when they provided for their own, and they fell into ruin when they abandoned self-responsibility and started looking to the government to provide. One of the most important lessons of history is that no people who have lost their character can keep their liberties. Rome learned this lesson the hard way, and so will America if it doesn't learn from Rome's example. In the early days of the Roman Republic, the government sporadically intervened in times of crisis to distribute subsidized grain to Rome's more impoverished citizens. Yet this grain dole did not become institutionalized until a populist demagogue named Publius Claudius Pulcher became tribune of the plebs in 59 BC. He bribed the Roman electorate with promises of free grain at taxpayer expense and easily won public office. People from the surrounding countryside flooded into the city of Rome to receive their free grain, while selfish politicians tried to one-up each other, spending huge sums of money to win public favor. By the time Julius Caesar became dictator 15 years later, roughly one-third of the city of Rome's overall population was receiving free grain. Caesar's nephew, Caesar Augustus, was able to reduce the number of people on the grain dole from 320,000 to only 200,000 by checking proof of citizenship before handing over grain. But the practice of distributing free food continued until the Roman Empire collapsed 500 years later. A series of emperors based their power on the huge handouts they gave to the people, and the people liked this fact. Henry Haskell described this tragic turn of events in his insightful book, The New Deal of Old Rome, How Government in the Ancient World Tried to Deal with Modern Problems. He writes that less than a century after the Republic had faded into the autocracy of empire, the people had lost all taste for democratic institutions. On the death of an emperor, the Senate debated the question of restoring the Republic, but the commons preferred the rule of an extravagant despot who would continue the dole and furnish them free shows. The mob outside clamored for one ruler of the world. Emperor Aurelian, who reigned during a time of protracted crises in the third century, 
bolstered his popularity by giving people government baked bread instead of just giving them the grain they needed to make their own bread. He declared government relief payments a hereditary right and handed out free salt, free pork, and free olive oil to the masses. Other cities followed Rome's example and the populations of Alexandria, Antioch, and Constantinople also became dependent on government largesse. People were schooled to expect something for nothing, so they shirked work and began seeking after leisure. It was a failure of the old Roman virtues of self-reliance and initiative that caused the Roman Republic to give way to the Roman Empire. And it was the continued failure of these same Roman virtues that eventually caused the Roman Empire to fall into ruin and decay. As the late theologian Herbert W. Armstrong put it, when any nation begins to look for its government to provide, that nation is on a greased toboggan slide to decay and to oblivion. It brought about the fall of Rome. It brought about the fall of proud Babylon long before, and it's bringing about the fall of America today. Now, during the early days of the Roman Empire, a denarius was worth about a day's wages for a skilled laborer or craftsman. These coins were of high purity, holding roughly 4.5 grams of silver. But as Roman emperors began spending more on wars, government relief payments, and gladiatorial games, they found they did not have enough silver to pay for all their projects. But they soon found a way to work around this problem. Rather than raise taxes, Emperor Nero reduced the amount of silver in a denarius to only three and a half grams, so he could mint more coins with less money. Of course, this made each denarius less valuable, and merchants soon started asking for more denarii for the same goods and services. So Nero's successors devalued the currency even more. Emperor Trajan reduced the denarius' silver content to 85%. Emperor Marcus Aurelius reduced its silver content to 75%. Emperor Septimus Severus reduced it to only 50%, and his successors reduced it even more. By the time of Emperor Galenius, around AD 250, the denarius was a bronze coin with a thin veneer of silver that quickly wore off to reveal the poor quality underneath. Barbarian mercenaries were still paid in gold because they would not accept worthless Roman denarii as payment, but native Roman soldiers just had to cope with the hyperinflation. Ancient records indicate that a soldier's wages increased from 200 denarii per year in the time of Caesar Augustus to 600 denarii per year in the time of Galenius. Yet the silver content in a denarius plummeted from 98% to only 0.2% over this same time period. This suggests a hyperinflation rate of over 15,000% in the 3rd century. As Mikhail Rostov-Zeff put it in a history of the ancient world, Rome. To crown all these calamities, the emperors, in their need for money, issued a vast quantity of coin. Not possessing enough of the precious metals for these issues, they alloyed the gold with silver, the silver with copper, 
and the copper with lead, thus debasing the coinage and ruining in the end men who had once been rich. This measure cut off the root of trade and industry. The government mint in the third century became a vast manufactory of base coin. It is no wonder that a social and economic crisis of extreme severity was brought about by these conditions. So now with the survival of empire at stake, Emperor Diocletian attempted to halt runaway inflation with price controls. But this plan backfired as well. Rather than fix inflation, Diocletian's edicts made merchants afraid to sell their merchandise for less than it was worth, lest they suffer a devastating financial loss. Therefore, demand for merchandise skyrocketed and so did prices. Diocletian's price-fixing decrees were soon abandoned while the emperor looked for a way to restore order without restoring the civic virtue and sound fiscal policy that made the Roman Republic great. After the crisis of the 3rd century, emperors were no longer able to obtain sufficient resources by debasing the currency to raise revenue. So Diocletian implemented a series of tax hikes so rigid and unwavering that many were driven to starvation and bankruptcy. Since money was worthless, the new system collected taxes in the form of actual goods and services. After calculating how much cloth, grain, oil, weapons, and other goods it took to sustain a Roman soldier, imperial bureaucrats figured out how much each family owed the empire. In the 50 years after Diocletian's reform, the Roman tax burden roughly doubled to somewhere around 14% of the empire's gross domestic product. Now, such a percentage seems low by modern standards, but in the 4th century, incomes were so low that many farmers abandoned their land in order to avoid taxes and instead receive public entitlements. This created a circumstance where, according to anthropologist and historian Joseph Tainter, those who lived off the treasury were more numerous than those paying into it. Tax riots and rebellions among those few who continued to work for a living grew commonplace. But this did not stop Emperor Valentinian III from imposing an additional 4% sales tax on the people. Under such debilitating circumstances, many lamented that they actually wanted Germanic barbarians to deliver them from the fearful load of taxes. One late 5th century writer, Zosimus, quipped that as a result of the extraction of taxes, city and countrysides were full of laments and complaints, and all sought the help of the barbarians. This is why Edward Gibbon who wrote the influential book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, listed increased taxation as one of the five major causes that contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire, alongside the breakdown of the family, the insatiable craving for pleasure, an unsustainable buildup of armaments, and the decay of religion. The Ambassador College Press book, The Modern Romans, published in 1975, states it this way. The economic oppression of the later empire increasingly ate the spirit, loyalty, and pride out of its citizens, high and low, and fostered a rash of other ills. 
It tore away at community and at national spirit. The cost of running a gigantic empire were massive. They caused a perpetual administrative struggle to maintain a stable economy. The ever-burgeoning government bureaucracy became horribly expensive. It took a veritable army of officials to man and work the complicated dual supply and demand of both the government service and the military. This necessitated laying still heavier burdens of taxation upon an already overburdened people. In fact, this tax burden further ravaged and battered Rome's shrinking private economy and made the empire easy pickings for the Germanic leader Odoacer in AD 476, when the empire finally collapsed completely. America's founders believed they could create a stable society by looking at back on what Rome did right. So it is also imperative for modern Americans to learn from what Rome did wrong, lest they repeat the same mistakes themselves. It's time for today's Last Word. Some say family isn't worth it. You've seen the wry comments on greeting cards and tacky coffee mugs. Marriage is not a word, it's a sentence. Marriages are made in heaven, but then again, so are thunder, lightning, tornadoes, and hail. The first half of our lives is ruined by our parents, the second half by our children. These ideas come from people who don't understand God's purpose for family. Knowing why family helps us to see the so-called negatives for what they really are, noble sacrifices for an awesome purpose. In his book, Straight Talk to Men, James Dobson discusses something he calls the straight life. For a man in a family, he says, this is pulling your tired frame out of bed five days a week, 50 weeks out of the year. It is earning a two-week vacation in August and choosing a trip that will please the children. The straight life is spending your money wisely when you'd rather indulge in a new whatever. It's taking your son bike riding when you want so badly to watch the baseball game. It's cleaning out the garage on your day off after working 60 hours the prior week. The straight life is coping with head colds and engine tune-ups and crabgrass and income tax forms. It's giving a portion of your income to God's work when you already wonder how ends will meet. The straight life for the ordinary garden variety husband and father is everything I have listed and more, much more. Yes, family involves sacrifice. Any man who's married with kids and is doing his job can identify with that to some degree. And the straight life for a wife is often even less glamorous. Viewed from a purely selfish perspective, it seems like a string of hassles. Many who do not understand why family seek to achieve its benefits without its sacrifice. Get a load of these excerpts from The Personal Marriage Contract, written by Dr. John F. Whitaker in 1976. He wrote, I understand that nothing is forever, that there are no absolute guarantees, 
and that now is the only real forever. I will love, honor, and respect, but not obey or subjugate myself to you until either of us changes his mind and maintains a change of attitude for a period of one year or until the termination date of the contract. Don't expect me to accept you as you are when you fail to maintain physical attractiveness and fail to take care of your body. I will put myself first. By keeping myself full, satisfied, and not hungry, I will have an abundance of joy, love, and caring to give to you. Wow. It doesn't exactly make you swoon with feelings of romance, does it? We may not take it as far as that man did, but we do naturally tend to approach marriage selfishly. As long as you're taking care of my needs, I'll take care of yours. If you uphold your end, then I'll uphold my end. But will that kind of marriage work? Would even that kind of friendship work? Imagine if God's love was so conditional. Instead of him saying, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, as he does in Hebrews 13.5, imagine him saying, don't expect me to hang around if I don't like what I see. If you're not fulfilling my needs, this really isn't going to work. That is not God's love. God's love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God's love never ends, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Human love centers on the self. God's love centers on the other person and living your life for someone else. It's not always comfortable or glamorous. Jesus Christ truly lived the straight life. His whole life was about serving being faithful and obedient. Never once did he say, I'm just going to do this for me. I've earned this. I deserve some indulgence here. No, he said, I do always those things that please my father. He truly sacrificed. He died in order to have a family, but he did it willingly because he had God's love. Many couples want a 50-50 marriage. But for a marriage to be as great as it can be, it must be 100-100. Each spouse has a role, and each must give it all he or she can. That's the way God's love works, and that's irrespective of the other person. Christ, our role model, died for us while we were yet sinners. What are you really giving up by living the straight life? Well, you're giving up selfishness. Yes, you have to forego some personal desires that aren't inherently bad, but we're not here for ourselves. And on the other hand, what do you gain by living the straight life? You gain love. You gain family, security, stability. You gain a peace that someone who's out chasing after his own desires just can't understand. And meanwhile, you're learning about God and you're living the family life he designed and you're growing and you're maturing in the process. That's quite a trade-off. Evaluate the quality of your love. Measure your patience, your loyalty, your constancy against that of Jesus Christ. 
Live for your family. Ask God to help you think like him. Thank God for showing you that straight and narrow way that leads to life and embrace the straight life. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guests, Jeremiah Jacques, Richard Palmer, and Andrew Miller. Thanks to Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Thomas Spratt. What you dislike in another, take care to correct in yourself. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.